Remain standing as you're able as we turn to God's Word. First reading in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 7. We are reading the inspired and inerrant word of our God. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with its bowl on top of it and its seven lamps on it and with seven spouts belonging each, belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olives, olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the other side on its left. Then I said to the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking to me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14 is our text. We'll back up to chapter 10 and verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me and saying, Go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff saying, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood up, uh, they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. In you, O God, whose word we praise. In you, O Lord, whose word we praise. In you, O Lord, we trust. We trust in your word. We trust the promises that you've given concerning your word, its power, its efficacy in our lives. And we ask now that by the Spirit's power that you would be pleased to bring forth your word in all of its efficacy in our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just as... Revelation 7 presents an interlude between the opening of the 6th and 7th seals. So Revelation 10 through verses 11, uh, chapter 11 and, four, and, cha- and verse 14 uh, forms an interlude between the sounding of the 6th and 7th trumpets. Uh, the interlude between 
the sixth and seventh seals symbolizes the sealing of the uh, 144,000, the, the, uh, the 144,000 that symbolize uh, the true Israel, God's elect in Israel, symbolize uh, all of God's elect uh, in uh, the church. Uh, they were protected, sealed from the coming judgment. And that symbolism is paralleled uh, in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets in the measuring of the temple here in chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2. There's a ceiling we're going to see of, of uh, the church, a ceiling of God's people in the church. The first 14 verses here in chapter 11 form a double picture, just as chapter 10 has done. Remember in the uh, in chapter 10, the first four verses uh, begins by assuring us that though Satan rages, Christ reigns. He's, he towers over the land and the sea. Uh, he has his foot on the sea, has his foot on the land, uh, and he's, he's, he's reigning. His kingdom will indeed come according to God's decreed plan. And then verses 5 through 11 uh, in uh, here in chapter 10, uh, reveal the means by which uh, his decree is going to be carried out. It's through the witness of his word. Christ, the faithful witness, comes. He swears. He lifts his, his right hand to heaven, and he swears uh, by his Father in heaven. Uh, and then he recommissions John to prophesy. Uh, here at the end of chapter 10. You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And chapter 11 gives us two pictures as well. In verses 1 and 2, we have the measuring of the temple and then uh, we have the, the picture of, uh, in, in uh, the remainder of our text, we have the picture of the two witnesses. And that links chapter 10 and 11 together. So the focus of this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets is the witness of the gospel, the witness of the word. In our text today, Revelation 11, verses 1 to 14, shows that the church is sealed for bearing an enduring gospel witness. The church is sealed for bearing an enduring gospel witness. In the first place, we want to see here, in the first part of our text, God's protection ensures the church's faithful witness, the, the church's effective witness. God's protection ensures the church's effective witness. And then secondly, God's presence ensures the church's effective witness. God's protection and presence ensures the church's effective witness. 
So in the first place, we see God's protection for the church here in, in uh, the measuring of the temple and those in it uh, in verses 1 and 2. Uh, John is given a, a measuring rod. He's commanded to measure the temple. And just as John's eating of the scroll back in chapter 10 is based on Ezekiel's eating of the scroll in chapters 2 and 3 of his prophecy. So the instruction to measure the temple is based on Ezekiel's prophecy as well. In chapters 40 through 48, in Ezekiel chapter 40, the prophet is carried to a high mountain, a very high mountain to view the final temple that the Lord would build in of the last days. It's, it's a, symbol, a symbolic picture of the glorious future of Israel, of the restored church and kingdom of God. So as Ezekiel looks on in that vision, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, the, the, the temple's uh, dimensions were measured off by an angel. But in John's vision, the prophet himself is given a measuring rod. In Ezekiel's vision, the, the angel is given the measuring rod here. John is given, given the measuring rod. He's commanded to mark off the dimensions of the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it, verse 1. Says. John is commanded not only to measure architectural structures, the temple, the altar, but also the people, those who worship in it. The New Testament redefines God's sanctuary, redefines God's temple uh, as the people of God. Expounded, for example, uh, by Paul in uh, your meditation passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. He's not, he doesn't say uh, you individually. You is in uh, the plural here. That is what the church is. The church is the temple of God. That's how Paul defines it, both here in 1 Corinthians 3 and elsewhere. And that's how Peter defines it when he tells us that we are living stones in that spiritual temple of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Now, we've already seen a glimpse of this in uh, Revelation uh, 3 and verse 12, where we, we read uh, Jesus' promise, this eternal promise that he makes to each of the seven churches. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. The identification becomes more explicit in, in Revelation in chapter th uh, 13, verse 6, 
Now, when we're told that the beast who will blaspheme God's uh, will blaspheme God's name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. That is the heavenly church, in other words. The new Jerusalem that will appear in Revelation 21 uh, is, uh, uh, is wall to wall, top to bottom, temple. It's, it's a picture of the holy of holies in the temple. Uh, so heaven needs no other temple, uh, we're told there in Revelation 21, than the presence of God and, and the Lamb. Verse 22, it's also, uh, the church is also called the bride, the, the wife of the lamb there in chapter 21. Uh, it's uh, a, a portrait of the church. We're given a portrait of, of the church composed of people from every nation who hold to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, John is to measure the temple, which is symbolic of those in the temple, which is the people of God, which is the church of God. Measuring in the Bible is a symbolic action. In in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, to divide, uh, to measure is to divide between holy, uh, that which is holy, and that which is profane. And so John is is using uh, this to symbolize the divide between that which is holy, the church of God, and that which is profane. Uh, And he's also indicating here uh, that God is, as he's measuring, uh, that that God is protecting that which is within uh, the, the holy temple. And so John is to measure God's temple, he's to measure its altar, associated with the, the, the suffering church. Uh, he's uh, to measure its worshipers as a sign of, of the ultimate invincibility of the church. Why? Because God protects. God preserves his church. And so what we have here in Revelation 11, verses 1 uh, and 2, uh, in Revelation 1... I should say, is a symbol in symbolic form of what Jesus himself puts in words to his apostles in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, John is to measure the inner court, the church, but he's told to leave out or cast out. That's a, that's a word uh, not incidentally that's used for putting outside of the church, casting out demons and for putting outside the church. He's to leave out or cast out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. Remember, he's distinguishing between the holy and the profane. And so, 
He's forbidden from measuring the court outside of the sanctuary itself. And the reason is given here in verse 2, namely, it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. The prohibition of measuring the outer court shows that what is measured is placed under divine protection. And what's not measured is exposed to assault by the nations. It also implies that that what's outside the sanctuary symbolizes uh, the holy city, the city of Jerusalem itself. They will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. These instructions to John here in in verse 2 allude to Jesus' prediction of the fall of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, which was fulfilled in the year A.D. 70. There Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of uh, the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is uh, what he says there in Luke 21, 24 is, is an allusion to what Daniel said when he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem in his prophecy, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13. So Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, predicts a protection of believing Jews, all believers in Palestine, from the Roman invasion and siege of Jerusalem under Titus, having been warned by Jesus to flee the city. Remember, Jesus does that. He tells them, Get out. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, get out of the city because you know what's coming. The city's going to be destroyed. So the temple's sanctuary symbolizes first century Christians who believed Jesus and who were spared. Spared from God's wrath against those who had rejected and killed the promised Messiah, who themselves are symbolized in the unmeasured outer court, the holy city of Jerusalem falls under God's wrath. God's protection ensures uh, the church's enduring witness. Secondly, God's presence ensures the church's effective witness. In verse 3 of our text, the one who gave John the rod now implicitly identifies himself as divine by saying, I will grant prophetic authority to my two witnesses. The one speaking to John here in chapter 11 is the strong angel of chapter 10. These are my two witnesses, Jesus says here in chapter 11. 
we argued that that strong angel in chapter 10 could be none other than, uh, than the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation, Christians, as nowhere else, as elsewhere rather in Scripture in the New Testament, Christians are Christ's witnesses. Uh, for example, uh, the martyrs are, are Christ's witnesses. Revelation 2, verse 13 and 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 6. Uh, they are entrusted with the testimony of Jesus. Uh, Revelation 19, 10 and, and 20, verse 4. Because Jesus is the faithful witness. Revelation 1, verse 5. The two witnesses here in verse 3 are clothed with sackcloth. That's an indication, uh, symbolic, uh, of, of their identity, that this is the traditional dress of prophets. also symbolizes their mourning over Israel's apostasy and uh, the message that they bring of impending judgment and a call to repentance. The time period in which these two witnesses carry out their prophetic proclamation is symbolized with the span of 1260 days. Now, we're going to go over this again, so I know this is somewhat confusing. Um, we'll talk about this again because we're going to come across these in different ways as, as we move on in the text. But 1,260 days is, is, uh, is repeated in different ways in, as we go on through the, the book of Revelation. Uh, it's 42 months here in, uh, cha- in, in, uh, in uh, uh, chapter... Uh, 11 and verse 2, um, uh, rather 11 and verse 3, uh, and uh, also in 13.5. It's 1,260 days in 11.3, sorry, 42 months in 11.2 and 13.5. 1,260 days in chapter 11, verse 3, and chapter 12, verse 6. And a time, and times, and half a time, in uh, 12.14, this is the mysterious time and times and half a time uh, that's derived from Daniel, Daniel's prophecy, chapter 7 and verse 25. Uh, it, time, times and half a time symbolizes one half of the sabbatical cycle, uh, a sabbatical year cycle, a seven-year cycle. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a year two years, and half a year. That adds up to three and a half year. That's, a, that's half of the seven-year sabbatical cycle. And these three designations all measure the same length of time. Since in the ancient world, a month was calculated as 30 days. 42 times 30 equals 1,260 <coughs> A year containing 360 days, 3.5 times 360 equals 1,260. So the statements in Revelation that contain these time markers are 
perspectives of the same period of history. The period that lasts 42 months in uh, the, the first chapter 11, verse 2, and the last, chapter 13, verse 5, of its descriptions. And in both, uh, the focus is on the church's enemies and, and their aggression against the church. The same period lasts 1,260 days in chapter 11, verse 3, and 12, verse 6. And these are, in these, uh, the focus is on the church's witness and protection by God. So we're looking at things from different perspectives uh, don't ask me why different, uh, they're described numerically differently. I don't know. Uh, ask the Lord. He knows. Maybe, maybe that's something we'll all ask when we uh, get to heaven. In verses 5 and 6, Christ portrays these two witnesses as wielding the power to perform signs of judgment after the pattern of the two great witnesses of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. In Numbers 16, verse 35, fire came down from heaven at Moses' word and consumed the false worshipers who had rebelled against him. And in a similar way, fire fell from heaven and consumed Elijah's enemies. When he spoke the word of God, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. And that becomes a, a standard symbol for the power of the prophetic word, as if fire actually proceeds out of uh, the mouths of God's witnesses. As the Lord said to Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 15 of his prophecy, Behold, I'm making your words, uh, my words rather, in your mouth, fire. And this people would, and it shall consume them. These witnesses have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall in the days of their prophecy. That is for the 1260 days the three and a half years. The same duration, not incidentally, that the drought, that the word of God uh, brought upon the land during Elijah's days lasted. First Kings 17. We're told that in James verses 5, verse 17. Like Moses uh, in uh, the 10 plagues, Exodus 7 to 13, now, the witnesses have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to, to strike uh, the earth with every plague as often as they desire, uh, we're told. So these witnesses are to remind us of the prophets of old, especially Moses and Elijah, but they, they point beyond themselves, they point to Christ, the greater prophet. The very last message of the Old Testament mentions Moses and Elijah together in a prophecy of Christ's advent. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Behold, 
I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet. Malachi 4, verses 4 and 5. Malachi goes on to declare that Elijah's ministry would be recapitulated in the life of John the Baptist. Malachi, verses 5 and 6. And remember, John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah. The two witnesses, therefore, summarize all the witnesses of the Old Covenant culminating in the witness of John the Baptist pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're two in number for two reasons. In the first place, Old Covenant jurisprudence required two witnesses, you remember. Deuteronomy 19.15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be confirmed. Secondly, they're portrayed here, I hope you noticed, in the imagery of Zechariah's vision there in chapter 4. The vision of the lampstand supplied with oil by two olive trees in God's sanctuary, which flow with an unceasing supply of oil, symbolizing the Holy Spirit's empowering work in the leaders of his covenant people. The, the meaning of the symbol, uh, uh, we're not left to guess about that. It's summarized for us in the passage that we read in verse 6. Not by my, mouth, my, my might, uh, rather, uh, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so Revelation 11.4 says, of the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. Again, John is taking uh, prophetic imagery and he's adapting it for, for uh, his purposes. Uh, rather, perhaps we should say that uh, Christ is taking prophetic imagery here and as he reveals it to John and adapting it for, uh, for his uh, purposes. Uh, there's one lampstand in, in Zechariah, but there are two lampstands here representing the two witnesses, two olive trees. In the context in Zechariah, uh, uh, the, the, the trees are interpreted as uh, two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth, Zechariah 4, verse 14. And one of them is Zerubbabel, uh, and the other is Joshua the priest. So these represent uh, royalty, and they represent the priesthood. That gives us a clue here of the broader meaning of, of these two witnesses. We've said that they, they we've already said that they represent more broadly uh, the, the, the prophets of, of the Old Covenant, more specifically Moses and Elijah, but now we're going to broaden a little bit more and we're going to talk about uh, the, these two witnesses as representing the church uh, because Revelation 5.10 uh, which we've already considered some time ago, uh, gives us uh, the, the, the symbolism 
uh, that God's people are a, a royal priesthood. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And that's confirmed by further evidence, uh, this idea that, 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 that the two witnesses are, are represent the church is, is confirmed uh, by further evidence in uh, Revelation where the description of the witness's death uh, in our text closely uh, foreshadows the latter statement so that we, we have to uh, we have to put these two uh, together. 11.7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And then uh, in 13.7, it was also given to him, that is the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and the authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. As well. So the two witnesses more broadly represent the church, and that brings this closer to home for us. We're no longer talking about Old Testament prophets. We're no longer talking merely about Elijah and Moses. We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ, and we're talking about the church of all ages, and we're talking about our witness. We're talking about God's protection of the church, which assures us that the gospel will endure with its witness throughout all ages, and we're talking about God's presence, which will also ensure that the gospel and its witness will endure through all ages. Now, something happens in verse 7 that seems to contradict this. The scene changes dramatically in in verse 7. The witnesses are, by all appearances, defeated and destroyed. When they finish their testimony, the beast comes out of the abyss to make war with them and overcome them. This is the first mention of the beast in uh, Revelation the beast is, uh, is associated with Rome and apostate Israel in chapter 13. That's just a, a look ahead at, at what we're going to see there. But it must be remembered that these persecuting powers of Rome and apostate Israel are merely, uh, merely uh, immediate manifestations of the great enemy of the church, the dragon, who is formally introduced in chapter 12 and verse 3, the serpent of old, Satan himself. So here we're having symbolized the witness of the church and the opposition uh, to the gospel in the book of Revelation. We see here symbolically the dead bodies of these two witnesses lie in the streets of 
uh, the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, verse 8, where also their Lord was crucified. Uh, The city is, of course, Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations openly display their contempt for the witnesses whose dead bodies are allowed to stay in the streets for three and a half days, not, they were not permitting their, their, their dead bodies to be laid in, in tombs. And the irony is uh, that those who dwell upon the land the Jews themselves, the apostates of Israel, are rejoicing over the death of their fellow countrymen, sending gifts to one another, because these two witnesses tormented those who dwell upon the land, verse 10. But notice that the duration of the beasts and their apparent uh, triumph will be a brief three and a half days in contrast to uh, the prolonged period, three and a half years of the suffering church's faithful testimony. God intervenes as well to, to raise up. So it's not all doom and gloom. It seemed by all appearances, that, that these witnesses were, were defeated and uh, destroyed. But God intervenes to raise his witnesses up from uh, the dead. As uh, in verse 11 we read, the breath of life came into them and they stood on their feet. And as their oppressors look on in fear, the witnesses are summoned to enter into, the, into heaven imitating their Lord's resurrection and ascension into the clouds. And then accompanying that is a great earthquake, we read in verse 13. We saw uh, a great earthquake. We've seen a great earthquake already in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. We'll see another earthquake in uh, in chapter 16, uh, verses 70 to 21, when the, uh, the, the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, it shatters uh, the great city Babylon, it shatters Jerusalem into three parts. What distinguishes the portrayal of the earthquake that accompanies the witnesses and their exaltation from the latter portrayal in the in connection with the seventh bull, is the limitation of the damage that's inflicted here. Only one-tenth of the great city is destroyed, and only 7,000 of its inhabitants are killed. And those numeric valuations have meaning, as you might expect in Old Testament Revelation. In the Old Testament prophets, the fraction one-tenth carries the, symbol- the symbolic association with the faithful remnant that God spared when he inflicted covenant curses on Israel. Amos 5, verse 3, Isaiah, 
chapter 6, verse 13. The same meaning, sparing from covenant curses, is, is attached to the 7,000, uh, the remnant that's pulled out of uh, the worship of Baal in the days of Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. But notice in John's vision, this is turned upside down. The tenth of the city with its 7,000 residents are the first to fall under God's judgment. Those enemies who survive the earthquake and have beheld the witness of the church and the resurrection of the witnesses and their ascension, verses 11 to 12, are filled with fear and they give glory to God. Uh, the God of heaven. And again, that's Old Testament language for a conversion. That at, that, at, the, at the time uh, that this took place, that this phenomenon took place, that, that there were conversions as a consequence uh, of, of what took place there in the first century. And the, the vision of the sixth trumpet closes with these words. Of verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Two woes have passed. The church has been sealed in both cases. The church has been sealed after the, the judgments of the seven seals. The church is sealed here. It's protected. It's preserved in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. The third woe is coming, John says. In the pattern of uh, the vision of the two witnesses in their career here in verses 3 to 12, we have a replica of Christ, the life of Christ, the, the career of Christ, Proclamation and signs resulting in satanic opposition and persecution and a violent death in the city where Christ was crucified, followed by enemies looking on their victim, even as Christ's enemies looked on him on the cross. So uh, the the enemies of these witnesses looked upon their dead bodies uh, as they lay on the ground in uh, the city. Rejoicing in their death, even as there was rejoicing over Christ's death. And then resurrection and vindication by ascension in a cloud. And that's where the practical aspect of of all of these symbols comes into play. I know uh, these symbols are confusing, and I know they're hard to wade through, and I know that because I do it all week. Uh, But they do, I promise you, have a practical implication for our lives. All theology is practical. 
in all the symbology of Revelation is practical. And this symbology is designed to give the church of all ages comfort. To provide great comfort to true believers, it shows that the witnessing church shares in Christ's death, his resurrection, and ascension to glory. Christians will ultimately triumph over suffering, even though in the meantime they have to experience much tribulation. Because those who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will follow him through his entire career. John Murray put it this way, because we're in union with Christ, whatever God does to Christ, he does to us. And because that's true, because we share in Christ's suffering, we will also share in his glory for his name's sake. We should also take encouragement in our text's message of the invincibility of the church and its witness, the gospel cannot be stopped. We live in an age, dear Christians, when the world around us is trying to stop the gospel. They don't like the gospel. They don't like the morality that the gospel presents. To begin with, they don't like the exclusivity of the gospel, the presentation of of one way to heaven through one Lord Jesus Christ. They don't like that. And they'll do anything that they can to stop the gospel. But what we've seen in our text is that these two prophetic witnesses cannot be stopped as long as their mission is incomplete. As long as the church's mission on earth is incomplete, the gospel cannot be stopped. It cannot be snuffed out. And that's the message of the book of Acts. It's been a long time now that I, uh, since I preached through the book of Acts. But if you read, the next time you read through the book of Acts, you... Each time you see those reports of the expansion of the church or the success of the propagation of the gospel, and those come often in between these reports of of the persecution of the church and the persecution of the apostles in the book of Acts. Every time you read those, you read those as an indication that the gospel train cannot be stopped. Gospel witness is invincible because behind it stands the Almighty God. And then our witness, uh, our vision rather, of the two witnesses also leads us to recognize our need to rely upon the Holy Spirit for our witness. 
The two witnesses are representing the prophets, yes, representing specifically Moses and Elijah, yes, but more broadly representing the church's witness, the church of Jesus Christ and its witness stand in God's presence even while suffering. And they draw their strength from the Holy Spirit. The two olive trees represent that continual supply of strength from the Holy Spirit. The oil from the olive trees, the light from the lamp flow through them, empowering their witness to the unbelieving world. And that paints a picture for us of the need for our utter dependence as those who ourselves following the faithful witness Jesus Christ called to be faithful witnesses need to be in utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit if we're ever to be able to do what Christ has called us to do. Let's pray. We bless you, O God, for these symbols that you've given us of the perpetual nature of the church and its witness. We confess that they confuse us and that we find them hard to understand. And they're easy to, to get mixed up in. But nevertheless, O oh Lord, we pray that we would see the shining message, especially the message that you've given us today of your protection of the church and your presence with the church throughout all ages so that its witness might be effective the invincibility of the church and the invincibility of the church's witness. And we pray, O oh Lord, in particular as regards this congregation and as regards us, that you would help us to rely, help us to depend, help us to see our great need to Rely upon the Spirit's help as we seek to be faithful to our calling as witnesses on behalf of the true and faithful witness, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.